We thank you, Jesus, for how you show us the Father, for how we can see the glory of God by looking at you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith this morning, that we would, as we see John's witness to you in your word, Jesus, that we would see you clearly for who you are. Spirit, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to shift this because I'm a little nervous. I'm going to knock it over. Okay, if I were to come up to you, I haven't met you yet. I'm sure there's some of you that I haven't met yet. But if I were to come up to you and I were to stick out my hand and I would say, I'm Luke, who are you? How would you answer that? What would be the, the first thing that comes to your mind? Likely, unless you really are kind of a bit of a weirdo, likely you would say your name first, right? So I'll concede your name, right? Your name is such and such. But then what would you say next? Would you go to your vocation? My name's Luke. I'm a pastor. Would you go to your nationality? My name's Luke. I'm an American. Would you go to your tribe? Would you go to your hobbies? Would you go to your interests? What, what would you go to to communicate your identity to someone else? Likely when we do that, oftentimes we say what we think is the most relevant bit of information for that particular person. What does this person need to know about me? And that's what we say defines who we are. In some settings, you might say that you are according to your profession. In other settings, you might say your hobbies or your interests. But what we're saying when we say, who am I, and we're answering that question, is we're giving what we think is most important for that person in that conversation to know right away. The way that we answer that question reveals what we're prioritizing. It reveals what we think defines us. Morgan just read for us how John the Baptist answered that question when people came to him. They asked him, who are you? In John 1.19, we begin getting into really the flow of the story of the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 18 is the introduction. John 1.19 sets off the story itself of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And as we work through these verses, we're going to look at two points this morning. We're going to look at John's identity, and we're going to look at John's witness. John's identity and John's witness. So first, let's look at John's identity. A few weeks ago, we met John the Baptist. We, we met this man named John, who was sent from God in verses 6 through 8. There we saw that John is a messenger, and he has a message. He is intended to bear witness to the light. Listen again to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John's purpose as a witness is to help people believe in someone else. He's to help people believe in the light in Everything he does bears witness to the light. It's saying, this is who you're supposed to trust in. In our passage, we see 
how he did this. A few weeks ago, we saw what he was supposed to do. Here we see how he did this. Verses 19 through 28 show us a conversation, a conversation that took place between John and representatives from the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, asking, what are you here? Why are you doing? Who are you? All those sort of questions are loaded in this conversation. Listen to verses 19 through 24. We see this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And verse 24 says they had been sent from the Pharisees. So when it says the Jews, John himself is a Jew. These are a section of Jewish people known as the Pharisees. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that we've met the Pharisees. Those of you who have been Christians for a little bit are probably familiar with the Pharisees. Even if you haven't been a Christian, but you've just been around Christians, you've probably heard the term Pharisee used before. But since this is the first time that we're seeing them in our story, I'm going to take a little bit of time just to explain who these people are. These are the religious leaders of the day. They would be the preachers in the synagogue where Jews would meet to worship. Pharisees knew that the reason why Israel went into exile in the Old Testament, the reason why all the bad things fell upon Israel in the Old Testament was because they broke the law. And so what the Pharisees did is they they were a group that came to being in between the time the Old Testament was written and the New Testament begins. They came up and they said, okay, we went into exile because we broke the law. What do we need? We need to keep the law. And so they made rule upon rule upon rule in order to safeguard and preserve the keeping of the law. They said, when we obey the law, then blessings from God will come upon us. So they added to it. They didn't just say, we need to keep the purity laws. They said, you must wash your hands in order to be clean. So they, they, they put safeguards in place. Some of us are like that. Right? We know we're not supposed to sin in this particular way, so we actually draw a line earlier to safeguard us. And there, there could be wisdom in that. What we see as we interact with these Pharisees throughout the time of the gospel is we see that they were trusting in their rules. They wanted glory from them. They were concerned with how people thought about them. They, they did want God's kingdom to come, but they wanted to be first in line for it. They wanted to be the best in the kingdom. And so they put rules and barriers in place in order to elevate often themselves. And we'll see this throughout the gospel. So they come to John because crowds of people are coming to John in order to be baptized by John. Right? We, we saw this a couple weeks ago. We're going we're to look at this again. So Mark 1 describes it in this way. This is how the Gospel of Mark describes it. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, that's to John, and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. Now, this is not Christian baptism. Right? This is not the baptism that we do today. Christian baptism is the sign of the new covenant. This is old covenant renewal. John is bringing people back in line with God's law and God's promises 
And this baptism is a way of saying we're confessing our sins, we're turning from our sins, we're repenting, and we are worshiping the God of Israel. This is an old covenant baptism. Now, in the time between the New Testament and the Old Testament, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were different religious groups of Jews that practiced baptism. This baptism was always a sign of Gentile conversion to Judaism. Right? So we see stories of this. That's kind of what John's doing, except he's doing it with the people of God. And this carries a message. You Jewish person need to confess your sins in order to be saved. You can't trust in your Jewishness in order to be saved. Right? He's actually going to speak in different places in the New Testament to the Pharisees who come. These are the religious leaders. He's going to say, you know who you are? You're a brood of vipers. So he's pointing out to people, sin is your problem. You need to turn from your sin and you need to repent. His baptism was showing the people of Israel that they were turning away and turning to the God of Israel. And that's why the Pharisees want to know who John is. They want to know, <laughs> what right do you have to do this? What authority do you have to do it? If you just went up in the street Right, let's say you go to town center, and you said, guess what, guys? On behalf of the UAE government, one million dirhams, everyone, come get it. UAE government says, one million dirhams, free. What are the police going to do? They're going to come and say, who are you? And in that question, they're asking, what authority do you actually have to be able to do this? That's what the Pharisees are wanting to know. And so they ask him. They say, are, are you one of these key figures that the Old Testament anticipated that would bring about the kingdom of God? If you're providing a baptism of repentance so people would turn from their sins and turn to God, then are you one of these people that was predicted in the Old Testament? They, they ask him if he was the Christ, the offspring of David prophesied in 2 Samuel 7. They ask him if he's Elijah, the great prophet who had come before the day of the Lord in Malachi 4. They ask him if he is the prophet like Moses, that Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. He says that in Deuteronomy 18. Are you one of these people that's going to bring about the kingdom of God, John? But John answers no to all those questions. Right? We see that in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed... I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, it is interesting that Elijah says that he's not Elijah. Right? We, in, our, in our Bible study this last week, we spent a lot of time on this because Jesus actually says that for those who can receive it, John is Elijah. So why does John deny this? in his own ministry. It could be because John knows why the Pharisees are coming. The Pharisees are not actually coming in order to get in on the kingdom. Right? They're coming in order to stop what John's doing so they can be the ones that bring about the kingdom. We see this in how they respond to Jesus, who is the Christ, and who claimed to be the Christ, and who was looked to as the Christ. They weren't like, yes, fantastic, we've been waiting for you. They were like, the whole world is going out to him. We need to shut this down. 
So it could be that John's denying these because he knows the Pharisees don't really care. They want power. And so he's not giving them any hint. I don't think that's the case. It could be the case. I think what the case is, is that John didn't actually fully understand the significance of his ministry. John had a calling from God and was faithful to the calling. He knew what he was supposed to do and how he was supposed to do it. But John is not all-knowing. Just like soldiers on the front lines of a battle, they may not know all of the strategies and how all the other groups of soldiers are moving in order to execute the general's plan. But what they know is that I need to get over that hill. And so that's my job. I'm going over the ridge. They are faithful to what they're called to do. They know what they're called to do. But they may not understand the whole rest of the significance of how them getting over the ridge serves the battle line. That may be what it's like with John. Either way, regardless of whether it's he's not giving the Pharisees anything or he didn't fully understand the significance, what's most important about John is how he describes his own ministry. Listen to verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? (laughs) We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John read this for us in our Old Testament reading. The Lord is coming. Make straight the way of the Lord. John is no more than a voice. He is a voice crying out. He is not bringing the kingdom. The kingdom's coming. He is saying, God's coming. God's coming. God's coming. And as he is preparing the way of the Lord, it doesn't matter who he is. It matters what he says. It matters that he is faithful to call out. He doesn't have power on his own. He doesn't even have a name in the way that he describes himself. Who are you? Hi, I'm John. No. Who are you? I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Nice to meet you. John doesn't draw people to himself because it's not about himself. He is a pointer to someone else. His identity matters most, not who he is, but who he points to. We see this humility again on display in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You don't have to be very worthy to take off someone's shoes. (laughs) You don't walk into someone's house and the person says, ooh, I'm not worthy to take off your shoes. But that's how John views himself. John's not even worthy to do that of Jesus. He is not making much of his own name. He is not celebrating his own ministry or his own glory. He doesn't want people to see him. He wants people to see the one who comes after him. This statement goes against every part of human nature. It does. It goes against every part of human nature. So much of us want to be seen. We want people to recognize us. I bet there were a number of you this morning, as you were getting ready to church, to come to church, 
you were looking at the clothes that you were going to wear, and you were thinking, I wonder what people will think about this outfit. We dress to be seen by other people. We want other people to recognize it. We are so self-conscious about the way we look, about the way we come across, about what people think about us. Some of us are, are just like, we have a conversation. I can be this way. We have a conversation with somebody. Three hours later, we're just wondering like, oh, what did they think about me? How did I come across in that? We're thinking about ourselves in that moment because we are concerned about ourselves. We're concerned about how people perceive us. We want to be seen. Some of you come from churches where pastors actually expect you to see them. You are expected to see them at all times of the day because you're supposed to put their picture on the wall and you're supposed to look to them and you are even supposed to pray to them so that you'll get blessing. That happens. And John the Baptist would hate that. He would absolutely hate that because that takes away from the whole point of what a messenger is supposed to be. A messenger is supposed to point to someone else. Servants don't have their own personal brand. Servants don't bring out their own celebrity status. Servants aren't supposed to be seen and recognized by other people. They're supposed to help the master be seen and recognized by other people. John's identity, who he is, is defined by how he relates to Jesus. He is a voice who prepares the way for the Lord for Jesus' coming. And that leads to our second point, John's witness. John describes who he is to the Pharisees as a voice. And in verse 29 through 34, we see what he says about Jesus. And we see four ways that he witnesses to Jesus. The first is that he says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People were coming to John, remember, confessing their sin. People come to John. Some of them came with selfish motives to see a sight. Many of them came because they knew they had a sin problem. They had to do something with their sin, so they come to John to confess their sin and to be baptized. John points them to Jesus as the one who deals with that. One thing that means is that their baptism didn't deal with their sin. Their baptism didn't take their sin away. Their baptism was a sign that they were supposed to come to Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And while John the Baptist may not be fully aware of how Jesus was going to do that by dying on the cross to pay for sins, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, knows what Jesus is going to do. He was there when Jesus died on the cross. He was there when Jesus rose from the dead. He was there when Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit and breathe on his disciples. He was there when Jesus sent out the disciples into the world. And he writes this and he says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by dying on the cross to pay for sins. The very first time we in, are introduced to the Jesus 
in the Gospel of John, when we see him in the story on the scene. He is seen as the one who pays for sins. He is seen as the sacrificial lamb. The high point of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John is not his miracles. It is not his healing. It is not the way that he taught. The high point in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John is how he died to pay for sins. The very first time we meet Jesus, who is he? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The reason that is so important is because your biggest problem and my biggest problem is sin. We can so often think that our biggest problem is our circumstances. Our biggest problem is that we need a job, we need a visa, we need to be reconciled with this family member that we're experiencing conflict, we need respect in our different communities. You may need those things. Those things may be problems, but they are not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is the fact that you will pay for your sins forever in hell unless someone else pays for them. You can have the best job, the best family, the best status on earth for 70 years and spend eternity suffering under the wrath of God because you never dealt with your sin. Your biggest problem is that you need your sin to be dealt with, and Jesus does this. He pays for it. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If only you would cast your sin upon him, if only you would turn to him in faith, if only you would recognize the way that sin destroys your relationships, destroys your enjoyment and desires, it destroys your soul forever, you would see that and turn to Jesus to take it away, he will. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Second, John says that Jesus is the one who ranks before him. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The reason that Jesus ranks before John The reason that Jesus is superior to John is because Jesus ranks before John. He was before John. John was born before Jesus. John had a public ministry before Jesus. So how was Jesus before John then, if John was before Jesus in all those ways? Because before John had ever taken a breath... Jesus was. Jesus was the Word that was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the reason John exists. He sustains John. He upholds John. By the word of his power, he sustains John's ministry. Before John ever was, Jesus was. He is pre-existent. He is eternal. He is the Lamb of God who existed before the foundation of the world. Third, John shows how Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descended and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
here we see a crucial element of John's baptism ministry. His baptism ministry wasn't to atone for sins. John's baptism ministry was in order to reveal the one who would atone for sins. He baptized with water so people would see Jesus as the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit? What this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean a second experience of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. This doesn't mean being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of us come from backgrounds where we talk about the baptism of the Spirit as a second thing. You become a Christian, and then a number of years down the road, you get baptized in the Spirit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You can experience a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. It is possible to be more filled with the Holy Spirit than what you currently are. We are actually commanded to pursue that. We are commanded to experience and to pursue a filling of the Spirit. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We should want more of the Spirit than what we currently have right now. But that's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens when someone is made alive, when they become a Christian for the first time. Here, John is referring to the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, God prophesies and he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When Jesus is baptizing with the Holy Spirit, he is the one who is giving the Spirit, the new covenant Spirit, to God's people. He is changing desires. He is causing them to be born again, giving them a heart that loves God, a heart that loves God's rules. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to have the Spirit of God put within us. It is to be made new. It is to be born of the Spirit and not just of the flesh. It is to be sealed with the Spirit as a down payment of our future inheritance. It is to be given a heart that beats for the things of God. It is to become part of the new covenant. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are baptized with the Spirit. You have the new covenant Spirit sealing you. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Because the Spirit remains on Jesus, John emphasized that. The Spirit didn't come, touch down on Jesus, and go away. Because the Spirit remains on Jesus, Jesus is able to give it to whoever he wills, which he promises. At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am going to the Father, and I will send the Spirit to you. I will not leave you as orphans. John 20, Jesus breathes on them symbolically, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus can give the new covenant Holy Spirit because he is the one that the Spirit remains on. He has the Spirit to give the Spirit. Finally, John concludes with a final witness to who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, and it remained on him. And John bears witness that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the high point. 
The high point here, I don't think, is that Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. He's pointing to who Jesus is, the Son of God. He's not just pointing to what Jesus will do. He's pointing to who Jesus is. This is the final testimony. He is the Son of God, the Savior of Israel. He is the one we have been waiting for, the Word, the Light, the Lamb, the Son. His name is Jesus. If you want to look at the second member of the Trinity, if you want to look at the divine Son who reveals the glory of the Father, where do you go? You go to Jesus. He's the one you want to see. He's the one you've been looking for. Anywhere else, you'll miss it. But when you go to Jesus, you see it. He is the Son of God. If Jesus is who John says he is, and he is, then what this means for you and what this means for me is that the most important thing about us is how we relate to Jesus. The most important thing about us is how we are connected with Jesus. If someone comes to us and says, who are you? (laughs) Are we going to ground who we are in how we relate to Jesus? Or are we going to go elsewhere for our identity? Jesus defined John's existence. John did not. John did not define who he was. He did not rule his own life. He did not create his own future. He did not follow his own dreams. John drew his purpose, his meaning, his identity, his mission from another, from Jesus. Being tied to Jesus is what made John who he was. He did not try to draw his identity apart from Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus was the one who mattered for John. And this makes a huge difference in the way that we live. Imagine a play made up of little kids. Some of you have kids in school, and you've been to that before. You have these little kids, and and, and there's a young girl who's on the stage. And she is what you would call an extra. She doesn't have any speaking lines. Sure, she got all dressed up, and maybe she's dressed like an angel or like a tree or like a pumpkin, but she just stands there on stage. And all she's doing is just standing there. She's not in every scene. She's not what the story is ultimately about. She's just on the stage there. Well, she does her part, and and afterwards, you see her dad run down to the front after everything's all said and done. He gives her a flower. He smiles and he takes a selfie with her. He praises her. He takes her out to ice cream afterwards. Now, if you were watching that scene and you were to come up to her dad and you were to say, why are you doing this? She was a tree. How hard is it to be a tree? I mean, she didn't even speak. You should, you should take that dude out to ice cream. He's the one who was the hero. He had the sword. She was just there. If you were to go to the dad and say that, everyone would think that you're a fool <laughs> because you missed the point. The reason the dad is doing that is not because of her performance. The reason the dad is doing that is because 
She's his daughter. That's what matters most. Her ice cream did not come because of her treeness or her pumpkinness or her acting. Her ice cream came because she's his daughter. So often when we look to our money and we say, you know what matters most? How much money I got. Or when we look to our jobs and say, you know what matters most? That I got that promotion. Or we look to the way other people think about us. We say, you know what matters most? Is that I have that power. We do that. We're like a six-year-old standing there on stage and say, recognize my tree acting. I demand that I be celebrated, not because I'm your daughter, but because I'm a good tree. That's foolish. And it misses the point. Your job, your money, your power matters for Christ's sake, not for your sake. And Jesus is the one who changes everything about your money, your power, your control. When Jesus defines your existence, it changes the way that you live in every area of your life. Who Jesus is makes all the difference. When you belong to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you don't have to try to pay for your sins. You don't have to beat yourself because you did something wrong. You don't have to hide your sin and cover it up because you're afraid other people will see it. Because you can point to Jesus and you can say, Jesus did that for me. Jesus dealt with my sin so I don't have to. And you also don't have to be the other person's savior in your life. Some of you so badly want to see your friends or your family members come to be saved. And you can almost become sinfully controlling because you want to keep them from doing wrong. You're not Jesus for them. You can pray for them. You can share with them. But you can't save them. When you belong to Jesus, you can entrust them to Jesus. Because he's the one who's going to take away their sin. When you belong to the one who is eternal, your daily living has eternal significance. Nothing we do in the moment matters only for a moment. Everything we do matters forever because we are connected to Jesus who lives forever. And Jesus will never not be around to keep his promise. He will never not be around to protect you. He will never not be around to ensure that your small, ordinary faithfulness is rewarded. When you belong to the one who gives the Holy Spirit, you don't have to do everything in your own strength. You don't have to try to be the strong one in your life. You can pray. You can cast your cares and anxieties upon God. In fact, you shouldn't view yourself as strong and capable on your own. You should walk by the Spirit. Depend on the Spirit. Lean into the Spirit's power. We should be confident in what the Spirit can do and humble in what we can do. When we belong to the Son of God, we have the full resources of heaven committed to our well-being. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That matters not because you did a great job in this life. That matters because you belong to Jesus. And if God gave you the best thing in Christ, then he will give other things. 
Brothers and sisters, when we belong to Jesus, we live in order to glorify him. Everything that we do serves this purpose because we want to see him recognized. Like John, we want to be voices that cry out, look to him, see him. Don't look to me. Don't come to me. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our efforts. He's worthy of our possessions. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our suffering. We will never give enough and be disappointed. We will never obey enough and be let down. We will never speak enough and run out of things to say. Who Jesus is, is the most important thing about us. And we will never plumb the depths of who he is. And the good news of the gospel is that the way that we belong to Jesus, that Jesus, the way that he becomes all of this for us, is by grace. It's by grace. In the adult Bible class this morning, we looked at Romans 5, which over and over again talks about the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. We saw that free gift wasn't free for Jesus. It was paid for by Jesus, so it could be free for us. If we would just turn from our sins and receive Jesus, all of the blessings and benefits that come from being connected to him become ours because we are in Christ. We are defined by Christ. Our identity is hidden with Christ. By faith, we belong to Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then that's the most important thing about you. You are not most important because of what you do. You are not most important because of your CV or how much money comes into your bank account every month or what your parents think about you. The thing that gives you your most meaning is Jesus. What does he think about you? How does he shape who you are? Because you belong to the one who has all and is over all and who paid it all, you yourself can give your all in delight and worship of him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you being who you are frees us to be the most who we are because we find our identity in you. That when we are hidden in Christ, Jesus, we have our greatest sense of value and purpose. We pray that we would live in order to make much of you, in order to show that you are great, that you are worthy, and that you are good. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.